Section 7 of Smithsonian Institution, United States National Museum. Bulletin 240. Contributions from the Museum of History and Technology. Papers 34-44 through 44 on Science and Technology. By the Museum of History and Technology. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Paper 35, Part 4. The Borghese Astronomical Clock in the Museum of History and Technology by Silvio A. Bedini. Borghesian Theory of the Universe. In Father Borghese's second volume, there is a separate chapter entitled An Exposition of the Latest Theory of the Universe. This follows the introduction to the reader, and in it, Father Borghese proposed that you might rightly conceive my new system of the world and mechanically, as it were, construct it. Imagine for yourself, beneath that most happy seat of the blessed and above all other heavens, a kind of spherical convexity, everywhere equidistant from the center of the earth and endowed with absolutely no motion. On the inside, at two points diametrically opposite each other, this convexity has two most sturdy poles, to speak mechanically, projecting towards the center, which you call the poles of the heavens, and the largest immobile semicircle in some manner is drawn from the center of one pole to the center of the other. This semicircle in the middle, namely at a point equidistant from each pole, is thought to be secured by some sign, for example, by that O, for arranging more perceptibly the seat of the sun, as will be shown later. This much must be conceived first. You must understand that, imposed on these poles, is the first mobile, primum mobile, everywhere convex, and divided into twelve equal parts, dodecatomoria, by the six greatest circles, intersecting each other at the centers of the poles. Then it is divided by another equally great circle, everywhere equidistant from the poles, into two hemispheres, one hemisphere of twelve parts, proceeding in orders from west, setting, to east, rising, should be assigned the respective signs of the zodiac, that is, one to Aries, the next to Taurus, and so on, etc. The circle which cuts those twelve parts transversely in the middle you call the ecliptic. Then these capital spaces of the prima mobile are subdivided by degrees, minutes, etc., both in longitude and in latitude, so that this heaven represents a kind of great spherical net, extended to capture the longitude and latitude of the stars, and mobile on the aforementioned poles. Note, however, and this is almost the leading point of the system, in that circle of longitude which divides the sign of Gemini from Cancer and Architenens, Sagittarius, from Capricorn, you must conceive two points directly opposite each other and removed about twenty-three and a half degrees from the poles. Boreal, the northern, between Gemini and Cancer, Austral, the southern, between Sagittarius and Capricorn. These two points, by some power, imagine it is magnetic power, equal between them. Hold the terraqueous orb suspended in the middle, by acting on the axis of the same orb. Imagine it is iron, in such a way that the earth is continually drawn to those two points as two opposite centers. It is never nearer to one, for as it is about to move towards one, the opposite power is constantly drawing it back. 
Thus both those points, and the axis of the earth, are always held in one common line, wherever those points happen to be carried by the rotation of this heaven. Again, it is necessary for you to conceive in this heaven first two great circles, bisecting each other at right angles in the centers of these two magnets. One of these circles, passing through the first point of Aries and Libra, in the ecliptic, is called equinoctial color. The other circle, passing consequently between the first point of Cancer and Capricorn, is called solstitial color. Beneath these are likewise imagined many other great circles, in the centers of the magnets, dividing crosswise in the shape of an X. But if, receding from these magnets, you describe circles parallel to each other, and ever greater and greater, up to the greatest circle which you will perceive, is called the equator, equidistant from each magnet, and obliquely splitting the ecliptic and the equinoctial color, you can then behold a great new woven net in this heaven of the prima mobile. This net most beautifully expands to extract the straight ascent and descent of the stars, etc., from the vast ocean of the heavens, catching the straight ascent in the great circles, and in other unequal circles parallel to each other, and obliquely cutting across, most safely catching the descent. Immediately below the prima mobile, place the heaven of the fixed stars, and, that the idea might be clearer, revolving separately on the same poles on which the prima mobile revolves. Through this heaven, the filaments of the little nets, etc., seem to the eyes of you on earth as if they shine. In this heaven you should conceive in their fixed places the fixed stars, a proportionate, inviolable distance from each other, and indeed, if you will, the heavenly images, etc., depicted and all carried along at the same time with their heaven by one motion. Conceive a straight line running from the center of the earth to that sign O noted in the semicircle of the supreme immobile heaven. On this line, greatly below the heaven of the fixed stars, place the center of the solar epicycle, holding an area in common with the ecliptic and subject to absolutely no motions, but at such a distance from the center of the earth that the semi-diameter of the earth has little, if any, proportion with the distance of the solar epicycle from the earth. Around the sun, moving continually in this epicycle, its immobile palace, through the degrees of the anomaly, you can revolve, with motions proportionate to the system, the five planets, Mercury and Venus, the nearest barons of the sun, then Mars, Jupiter, and most remote Saturn, with its respective satellites, etc., eccentrically surrounding the earth itself and the moon in their immense ambit and wandering by their proper motions through the zodiac. Nevertheless, not far from the earth, you should imagine fabricated, as from most refined crystal, the heaven of the moon everywhere equidistant from the center of the earth and revolving separately on the same poles, prolonged even to this place, on which the prima mobile and the heaven of the fixed stars revolve. In the middle of this, that is, in some point equally removed from the poles, you place the center of the lunar epicycle, movable also by the common rotation of the lunar heaven. I refrain from the other movements of the moon in latitude, etc., as also those of the five planets, etc., which the theory in no way excludes, lest by a variety of congested motions explained too abundantly, 
either you might be confused about the fundamental concept of the system or while adorning the theory and trying to embellish the least things more widely you might reject also the things which are capital here you already have the whole machine but still inert and to be animated for the first time by motions accommodated to the system nevertheless before i assign motion to the individual parts of the world so that the thing might later appear more clearly to you, I arrange all things thus. First as if by hand, I turn the prima mobile until the boreal magnetic point comes to the level, or the area, of the semicircle described in the supreme immobile convexity. Then I turn the heaven of the fixed stars until, for example, the heel of Castor, a star of the third magnitude, almost in the ecliptic, and indeed in our time not far distant from the solstitial colour, likewise falls nearly at the level of the aforesaid semicircle. Later, I turn the lunar heaven until I bring the centre of the lunar epicycle to the same level. Then I turn the earth until some predetermined city, for example Trent, situated in the northern zone with a latitude of about forty-six degrees is brought to the oft-mentioned level from things arranged in this way and from what has gone before it is evident with the motions of the luminaries in epicycles left out however lest you be distracted by the explanation that at trent just as in the whole northern hemisphere it is the summer solstice and conversely in the southern hemisphere it is the winter solstice. The reason is because the northern magnetic point, together with the northern half of the earthly axis, is at its highest point towards the sun, immovably residing in a line sent through the level of the highest semicircle. And conversely, the southern magnetic point, with the corresponding half of the axis, is most removed from the same. It further follows that noonday and the noon moon coincide and the heel of Castor almost reaches the summit, etc. Now, beginning from this hypothetical situation of the whole world as from the root of the motions, I move all things in their circles so that the earth turns on its axis with a revolving motion, from west to east in each twenty-four hours of median time. The lunar heaven completes one circle around its poles, likewise from west to east, in the time of twenty-nine terrestrial revolutions, hours 12.44.3.13.1. The sphere of the fixed stars on the same poles revolves once from east to west within 365 revolutions of the earth, hours 6.9.29.1. The prima mobile on the poles, common to the heaven of the fixed stars and the heaven of the moon, is moved once in the same way from east to west, a little faster, however, than the heaven of the fixed stars, yet within 365 revolutions of the earth, hours 5.48.56, that is, within a median astronomical year. Now, behold for yourself, a new world, supported on new poles, and provided with new motions and laws. Now, you reader, lover of the stars, turn it, and revolve it as long as it pleases you, and compare it astronomically and physically with the Copernican or the Tychonian systems, or whatever one pleases you more, and judge which one seems more constant with nature when all things are examined. 
but if you aren't able to reconcile this theory with some astronomical observations or physical experiments and think it should be eliminated from the group of theories see that i might know this while life is still my companion so that i might think with you if this is possible also so that in gratitude for the detected or perhaps hidden error i might speak or write and you won't have to shout in vain on bold ridicule and with no applause after the fleeing shades of the dead and the mute ashes but if you object that the daily motion of the revolving earth and the annual motion of its whirling axis do not sufficiently agree with certain texts of sacred scripture and if those things which the copernicans and the longomontanists say do not convince you then reject my whole system as an old wives tale last years there was a break in the story of borghese and bertolo for the next five years the second clock may have been the last project on which the priest and the clockmaker worked together for very good reasons the two clocks must have represented a considerable financial investment in materials and in time and neither of the men was in sufficiently affluent circumstances to undertake the luxury of such a hobby without some form of recompense the publication of the two little volumes must have also been done at father borghese's expense the income of the parish priest in a small mountain village could not have been equal to the relatively great costs of the projects that have been completed it seems probable that the priest attempted to sell his clocks to a wealthy patron perhaps the baron of clays or he may have attempted to obtain some form of recompense from the continuation of his research however no records can be found of such patronage if it existed if borghese had received financial assistance while the projects were in progress he would certainly have made adequate mention of the patron's name and assistance in one or the other of the two volumes which he published the next record relating to borghese which has been found is the description of a letter written by an anonymous mathematician late in seventeen sixty eight or early seventeen sixty nine it was twenty-eight pages in length written in latin in the form of a reply to the writer's brother on the subject of the clock invented by borghese it consisted primarily of a criticism launched against borghese's first little volume published in seventeen sixty three the anonymous letter is without date place or signature this writer claimed that father borghese had made many errors in his book presumably in the description of the clock's functions and in the basic theories upon which the priest had predicated his research no complete copy of the letter's text has been found for study although it is described at length in tovazi's biblioteca tyrolese tovazi noted that four copies of the letter existed at the time and that he personally had filed one in the biblioteca de Claes in trent however every attempt to locate a copy at that present time has been unsuccessful in the anonymous letter that was brought to the attention of father borghese it must have introduced a disturbing note into his life and cost the priest many unhappy moments he was not however dissuaded from his preoccupation with horology several years later in seventeen seventy three father borghese was working on yet another astronomical clock this time presumably without the assistance of bertola this third clock was reported by tavazzi to have been of minimum expense but of maximum ingenuity no subsequent information relating to it has come to light and there is no record that it was actually completed
Again, there is a period of silence in the life of Father Borghese, which no amount of research has yet been able to pierce. Whatever the circumstances may have been, it is reported by several of the sources noted that both the first and the second clock did in fact become the property of the Empress Maria Theresa in Vienna. The presentation was made sometime during the period between the completion of the second clock in 1764 and the year 1780. There is some discrepancy in the contemporary accounts as to whether Father Begizzi presented one or two clocks to the Empress, but all the sources, with but one exception, record that both clocks were acquired by the Empress. It is doubtful that Father Begizzi had originally intended to give his clocks to the Empress at the time that they were made, for he would most certainly have made some mention of such an intention in the two little volumes which he published about them. If he saw the letter published by the anonymous mathematician in late 1768 or 1769, it is possible that he decided to make the presentation in expiation of his sense of guilt for the amount of time which the creation of the timepieces had consumed. On the other hand, it is just as possible that Father Borghese may have forwarded copies of his two little volumes to the imperial court at Vienna, and that the Empress expressed a desire to acquire the clocks. Father Tavazzi states that in 1780 the clock invented by him, Borghese, was preserved in Vienna, Austria, at the imperial court, from which the inventor was receiving an annual pension of 400 florins. No records in the palace archives relating to the clock have yet been found, nor records of payment of an annuity to Father Borghese. However, a more exhaustive investigation of the furniture depository of the imperial court may bring forth related records. It was the implication in Father Tovazi's account that the second clock had been presented to the Empress prior to the publication of the anonymous critical letter in 1768 or 1769. He believed that it was the envy of Father Borghese's ingenuity, fame, and financial benefit that had caused the anonymous mathematician to publish his letter, for Tovazi asked, Who would have encountered opposition to such a marvel? Envy is not yet dead, and has always reigned. This last-mentioned theory about the presentation may be the most likely one. Some evidence may be found in the second clock itself, which bears out this assumption. The multiple chapter ring, with its many inscriptions, is engraved and silvered in a relatively crude manner, presumably by Bartola himself. The main dial plate, however, which is of gilt brass, is engraved with the utmost skill by one of the great masters of the art. The inscription below the imperial Habsburg eagle relates to Francis I, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. It is entirely possible that although Father Borghese originally had no intention of giving the clock to the emperor or the empress at the time that it was made, he later changed his mind. Accordingly, he may have commissioned a master engraver, possibly in Trent or Vienna itself, to produce a dial plate which would be of such a quality as to be worthy of the emperor himself. If so, this was done shortly after the clock was completed for the emperor died in August of the following year. Perhaps by the time that the clock was ready, the emperor had already died, and Father Borghese gave the clock instead to Maria Theresa without revising the inscription. The acceptance of the clocks by the empress, and the annuity which was his reward, would have constituted considerable honor 
even for one of the foremost clockmakers of the empire, but for a humble parish priest in a little village, such notable imperial recognition was overwhelming. Possibly as a result of it, a change was noted in Father Borghese in the next few years. His conscience began to bother him, and he began to question whether he had done right in spending so much of his time and thought on his horological research. He became more and more confused in his own mind. Had he spent too much time in mechanical studies to the neglect of his ecclesiastical duties? If this had been the case, he had committed the most grievous sin. Exaggerated though these thoughts may appear, they were undoubtedly of the most critical importance to the middle-aged priest. His mental turbulence and confusion increased daily, and it soon became apparent to others around him. By June 1779, he was completely in the grip of his obsession, and his parishioners began to whisper among themselves that their pastor was being tortured by the devil. They were unable to help him, and he became more and more preoccupied with his problem. The years passed slowly as the pastor became more vague and more tortured by his conscience. There probably was continued contact between Father Borghese and Bertola, for at least some time after the development of his illness. Bertola had retired from active work, but continued to pursue his interests in his clock shop as much as his health and advanced years permitted. A clock which he made at the age of eighty survives and is described and illustrated in the following section on the clocks of Bartolomeo Antonio Bertola. Finally, on January 15, 1789, Bertola passed away, and Father Borghese was left alone, deprived of the companionship he had enjoyed with the older man for the past two or three decades. One of Bertola's nephews continued to work in the master clockmaker's workshop, but there did not appear to be any association between the younger man and Father Borghese. At last, in 1794, Father Borghese lost his sanity completely, and he was forced to relinquish his pastoral duties to a curate. For the remaining eight years of his life, he continued to live in the rectory of the little parish church in Michal, where most of his life had been spent. His needs undoubtedly attended by the parishioners he could no longer serve. During this period, until his death at the age of seventy-nine on June 12, 1802, Father Borghese lived on, oblivious of those around him. Seemingly he retired to another world, perhaps to that universe which he had tried to reproduce in his second clock. The Clocks of Bartolomeo Antonio Bertola The ingenuity displayed in the Borghese clock by its constructor, Bartolomeo Antonio Bertola, requires a consideration of the other examples of his work that have survived. The most important of his clocks are probably the one in the Episcopal Palace at Trent, and another made for the Baron of Claes. The one which survives in the Episcopal Palace to the present time is extremely tall, and is housed in an elaborately decorated narrow case of black or ebonized wood approximately nine to ten feet in height. The upper part of the case is decorated with elaborately carved and gilt rococo motifs. The movement operates for one year at a winding, indicates and strikes the hours, and shows the lunar phases. It has an alarm, and will repeat this strike at will, indicating the number of the past hour and the quarters. The gilt brass dial is decorated with silver foliated scrollwork and relief at the corners, 
inside the chapter ring and within the broken arch. Featured above the chapter ring is the coat of arms, executed in silver, of the patron for whom the clock was made, Cristoforo Sizzo Dinoris. Dinoris was Bishop of Trent for thirteen years, from 1763 to 1776. The clock which Bertola made for the Baron of Cless is a tall, narrow case clock of ebony or ebonized pearwood, which is approximately nine and a half feet in height. The decoration of the case is considerably more conservative than the one made for Donoris, but the black wood is decorated with silver trim and carved designs in the wood itself. The dial is decorated with silver scrollwork and spandrels within and around a raised chapter ring. The clock operates for one month at each winding, has an alarm, indicates and strikes the hours, and will repeat the quarters. This handsome timepiece is still in the possession of the descendants of the Baron of Clays. According to Pipa, certain characteristics become apparent in a study of the surviving clocks by Bertola. The tall case clocks are narrow, and range in height from seven and three-quarter feet to ten and a half feet. The cases had this excessive height in order to obtain the greatest fall for the month and year movements, which Patola constructed. For the weight assembly, he substituted a drum, wound with a key, at the point of the driving wheel in place of the customary pulley. The addition of an intermediate wheel augmented the drop of the weight. Patola's movements were solidly constructed from well-hammered brass and iron. He favored the recoil anchor escapement in his clocks, and the Graham deadbeat anchor escapement with his seconds pendulum. The escapement was not always placed in the traditional location in the upper center between the plates. Bertola occasionally displaced the pendulum to one side, to the lower part of the movement, or placed it entirely between two other small plates. He utilized every type of striking work, including the music box cylinder, common in the clocks of the Black Forest and the Rack and Snail. Bertola most frequently employed the hour strike and grand sonnerie. He often used a single hammer on two bells of different sounds with the Rack and Snail. The example of this type is the clock he produced at the age of 80. To achieve the necessary axis of rotation for the hammer, which is perpendicular to the plate when it strikes the hours, it moves to an oblique position and displaces one of the two long pins in an elongated opening. Bertola's dial plates were generally well executed, with a raised or separate chapter ring applied to a brass or copper plate, such as a copper plate repou, and gilt with baroque motifs, or upon a smooth brass plate, with spandrels of repou work usually of silver, in relief and attached. The engraving of the chapter rings was excellent. The hands were well executed in steel or perforated bronze and occasionally of repou copper. Gilt was applied to the hands made of forged steel. In the course of time, Bertola's home workshop passed from one generation to another within the family. Inevitably, it underwent many modifications until the only original part of the building that remained intact from Bertola's time was his clock shop. Within the last few years, the workshop room was acquired, complete with contents from Bertola's descendants, and installed in the Museo Nazionale della Scienza e della Tecnica in Milan as an exhibit of a typical 18th-century clockmaker's shop, 
The original workshop was dismantled in Musinigo di Rumo and completely rebuilt in the museum, including the walls, ceiling, and floor. The paneling and woodwork of the walls and ceiling, which have been preserved intact, are hand-cut fir, with columns, trim, and moldings carved by hand. A small painting is featured in the center of the coffered ceiling. The original shop benches and chests of the drawers are set around the reconstructed shop, and Bertola's tools and equipment laid out as they had been originally. Other clockmakers' tools and equipment in the museum's collection are also displayed. Approximately 40% of the tools are the original items from Bertola's shop. Parts of clocks and works in progress are on view on the benches as they were in Bertola's time. Also preserved in the museum are sketches found in Bertola's manuscripts, some of which are reproduced on the following pages. The shop contains two completed clocks made by Bertola. One is a weight-driven lantern clock, typical of the 18th century, Italian style, with brass dial, plates and posts, anchor escapement, and striking work. The dial is engraved in the usual style of Bertola's Baroque design, and the hands are of pierced bronze. Another clock associated with Bertola and found in the shop was made by his nephew, Alessandro Bertola, who worked in Venice after his apprenticeship with his uncle had been completed. This clock is a regulator, with a seconds-hand pendulum and sweep-hand on an enamel dial. The original case has not survived. One of the most interesting of Bertola's clocks, and probably the last one which he produced, was found in his workshop. This timepiece indicates the hours, minutes, and quarters by means of a single hand, or an index. The weight-driven clock strikes the hours and quarters on two bells with a single hammer. The chapter ring, which is soldered to the dial plate, is marked for the minutes on the outer rim and for the four quarters inside it. Over the center of it is a semicircular opening in the dial plate, through which is visible a revolving disc attached behind the dial plate. This is marked with the hours, and revolves from right to left, the current hour being indicated by a projection from the minute ring. The brass dial plate is engraved with simple floral designs in the corners and around the broken arch. There is no comparison between this crude and simple decoration and the extremely fine quality of the engraving on the dial plate of the Borghese clock. For instance, in the center of the dial plate is engraved the following. Questo orologio le idea e le fece nella mia avanzata et adania tanta. I designed and made this clock at my advanced age of 80 years. Bartolomeo Antonio Bertola End of section 7